Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Bring up that data screen again for Andrew Sheets and Morgan Stanley. This is incredible. First of all, this should be right on the screen. Those are lower yields. Look at that move. Nine basis points down to 0.46. Andrew Sheets, these are ginormous moves. And I refuse to believe this is just because of fiscal noise. It is like a global yield compression, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty substantial move. So, look, I, th- I think there are two things that are going on here. I think the first is, I think specifically what we're seeing in Italy and maybe a little bit more broader in Europe is kind of a, an expression of that old saying that happiness equals outcome minus expectation. And I think expectations towards the eurozone, towards Italy among investors were pretty low here. So I think the fact that you have a compromise, at least temporarily, take some of that pressure off, I think is kind of colliding with the fact that investors were pretty cautiously positioned in Italy, were pretty bearish, and thus that makes these, these larger moves easier. But look, I think what we're seeing more broadly in yields, and I think especially in the U.S., is the bond market, I think, correctly adjusting that growth is going to be slower in developed markets uh, next year. And I think the U.S. will be the main kind of bond bullish story next year. I don't think that that story will extend to Europe, given where our starting valuation is. Mm-hmm. But I do think, you know, and I, I think it's more likely that we'll see U.S. yields lower next year than higher. Yeah, and that leads me to ask about your thesis that we're going to see convergence between a U.S. and European yields. You see U.S. yields move lower, but what of Europe? Do those yields move higher as well, especially given the markets are not pricing a, a hike from the ECB until 2020, last time I checked? So I, I do think that's something that could really surprise the market, right? So I think the market's looking at weak European data. It's looking at where inflation is. It's saying, look, the ECB's been on hold for forever. They will remain on hold forever. And yet, I think they're underestimating a couple of things. I think they're underestimating that growth in Europe could actually be pretty similar to this year, 1.6, 1.7, which is well above potential. You're seeing rising wage growth in Europe, which is right driving, I think, real core inflationary pressure. And right, the ECB's targeting you know, at or below 2% inflation. We're not that far away from that. And rates are at minus 40 So there's a lot of room, I think, for the ECB to raise rates before it's anywhere close to restrictive. I also think what people might be underestimating, and we could see this a bit in Japan as well, is that moving rates off of negative levels, maybe it's not tightening. Or maybe it's not tightening policy in the way we do. What do you mean by that? That's a really important statement. Because if we think what negative rates have done, they've made it very difficult for the financial system to function. Right. They made banking profitability very challenged, and that's probably made banks less likely to lend, less likely mm. to be out in the economy. And so I think you could see this idea that kind of the first hikes off of negative, kind of getting from minus 40 to zero, isn't really tightening in the traditional sense. And I think that could, I think the market's okay. view on that could change, and, and that would raise, raise market expectations. Well, you just heard there from Mr. Sheets, folks, is a massive zone. Guys, for 2019. I got to go mathy here. It's so important. Andrew, I refuse to believe, Jakob Fels on yesterday, who used to work with you, I refuse to believe that the move from negative interest rates to positive interest rates is an assured stability and is linear at the same time. I just mathematically don't buy that. What happens when the German two-year finally comes up for air? So I think that that would be a 
good thing. So, right, I, I agree with you, right? It's, it's, it's a major shift in policy. It's a major shift in, in where we've been. But I think it would have, I think, two kind of very tangible positive elements. The first is it would directly improve banking profitability. And the more exactly. profitable banks are, the, the more stable they are. And I think, secondly, it would be a signaling mechanism, right? If you're running a European business and you see, okay. you know, German two-year rates where they are, German 10-year rates where they are, right. it's not giving you a particularly optimistic signal about the long term. Right. And I think there can be a feedback mechanism. Oil, front and center, Brent, 56.48. And as John mentioned, West Texas Intermediate up 28 cents, 46.52. Amrita Sen with us with Energy Aspects. Amrita, wonderful to have you with us on, I guess, the microeconomics oil and all the nuance. I just want to talk about the blunt instrument of technology. Do smart people like you actually understand what all this petroleum technology will be in next year or the year after? Do you actually understand the the physics of it and the engineering of it? I think the engineering side is trickier, uh, partly because you know you really need to be in a Schlumberger or a Baker Hughes, a proper service company, to understand what's going on. But to your point, if people haven't been paying attention to how fast technology has been evolving in this sector, I think that's a mistake because it's not just about shale because that's obviously the most talked about bit, you know, hydraulic fracking and, and so on. But literally, like digital, um, the, the revolution we've seen in every sphere of upstream, um, offshore, uh, onshore, and even the deep, deep water, that has been really, really fantastic. And I, I don't think, I mean, it, that's going to continue evolving. And by the way, lower the prices go, uh, the industry right. is forced to innovate. And one of the ways to do that is through technology. Yeah. And, and John, this is so important when you look at the oil viscosity index, uh, L minus U over L minus H, and you look at the kinematic viscosity of petroleum, it's serious stuff. I, I'm not even going to pretend I know what you just said. I studied it years ago. I forgot it years ago. And Marita Senator, like, you have to live with this stuff. Because I'm sorry that, as, as Jeff Curry mentioned yesterday can to you, me. Can you put that in English for me here's what's in and English. our listeners that Every, don't understand and, and what Rita, you just this said. this is a really important question John brings up. Everybody got wrong the amplitude of the technology effect over the last 20 years, right? Yes, I think so. I mean, to be honest, uh, it's not just like I was saying, not just share. Look at the demand side. Just how quickly you are seeing cars become more efficient, the penetration of electric cars agreed. It is also much to do with government policy and forcing that uh, into people's lives. But you can't take away from the fact that, if anything, if you look at how where the tech industry is versus the oil and gas industry, the oil and gas industry is in its infancy when it comes to technological kind of innovation, so as to speak. If we can even get 10% of what the tech industry has achieved into this industry, we would be, I mean, the efficiency levels would be through the roof. Can we get to the price action? Can I do that, Tom? Yeah, it's okay. I just, I just wondered if you wanted to continue. I mean, you're, you're, you have a new show in development for next year. I shouldn't say this, but John, what is look, it? Look, look for 2019. John Farrell, the real barrel. That would be really, really cool. The real barrel. I, I'm sure that would get a lot of um, 
a lot of a lot of listeners and watchers. Tom Keith, thank you. Amrita, just to talk about the price action of the here and now, are we worried about demand now and not just supply? And to what degree? I think, you know, initially the sell-off was about the waivers uh, that Trump had given out. Then, obviously, OPEC had increased production. So that I would say the first $10, $15 was about that. And we had expected prices to stabilize there. Then that morphed into much wider kind of e- economic concerns, demand concerns. Really, it is about the, the China-U.S. trade war. And, you know, I was in China not that long ago. And my biggest takeaway there was that it wasn't that current demand is weak per se, but every single consumer indicator is telling you that we uh, – the uncertainty around this is really – dragging confidence down and uh, the, we had companies telling us that end yeah. users and petrochemical companies saying they're destocking. So we've got a genuine growth scare at the moment. Fair. Well said. Amrita, well do said. you think that materialises? Um, so you mean a genuine growth gap? No, a, a growth scare materialises into a genuine growth issue. Right now it's the perception oh, yes, that growth yeah, rolls over. Do you think that materialises uh, into something real? a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because if you're spending less, you're destocking from your inventory, then the profitability of the company, say you're buying a washing machine from, their okay. profitability goes down, but Tom, they invest less. This is the problem I think the Fed has later. They can sit here and say the US economy right now in is the okay. Now. In the here and solid, now. Solid, solid. But, but it's the perception of where we're going okay. and whether perception Absolutely. becomes reality. But, 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 but I mean, Rita, on West Texas Intermediate, we're 2.7 standard deviations down, $46.52. Do you have in your head a tip point where, you know, the markets move, as John was mentioning, supply-demand move. Is it like, is it $38 a barrel? Is it 40 Is it 20 You know, what's the number on a barrel of oil where we get real dynamics? To be honest, we are there because a lot of these WTI price levels, because remember, in the U.S., in a lot of basins, their wellhead prices trade at a significant discount to WTI. We are in shut in economics in a lot of places. But, also, I do think the last few days' move hasn't been to do with fundamentals. Fundamentals right here, right now, yeah. aren't that bad. Yeah. But yes, if the perception is right, and if we are to enter a recession, right. then, uh, then yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about much, much lower oil prices, but it has probably gone a bit too far. But right here, we are absolutely and, curtailing, and we, sorry, or rather, we right. will be curtailing U.S. production if we stay here. And good morning to Canada, West Can- Western Canada, under $20 a barrel, and it jumps up on some social announcement in that, up to $40 a barrel, and it's just rolled over in the last three days, John. I'm Rita Sen. It's been great to catch up yeah, with you. Thank you so much. Chief Oil Analyst. We are honored to have with us the former governor of the Federal Reserve System, Randall Krosner, of course, prodigious in the sense of mathematics, model building, dynamics. And I guess I could say, Randy, what it means for the little guy. You have been forefront on community banks and small banks. Talk about all this big picture stuff. You've had the courage, uh, Professor Krosner, to talk about the little guy in our financial system. How is the little guy doing if there isn't a real rate out there? How distorted is small business and community banking in this odd low real rate, zero real rate environment? Well, certainly the those rates affect affect all and have a particular in, impact on uh, 
those who have to uh, focus on the banking system rather than the, uh, uh, the the markets more generally, because they are very much uh, tied to borrowing from uh, the uh, the small and medium sized banks. Um, the Fed interest rate policy, of course, affects uh, both small and large institutions. Um, but I think the, um, uh, the the low rate policy has been helpful to small and medium sized business to be able to lower their cost of capital, try to get them uh, in the uh, recovery mode. And I think that has happened over time. Obviously, uh, the the shocks of right. uh, 2008, 2009 were, were quite deeply felt and particularly deeply felt by small and medium sized business. But I think they've started to get onto um, a much more solid footing and have actually been creating a lot of jobs over the last few years. I'll go with the optimism in the U.S. Could you comment, please? And I don't know what you've done with Bank of International Settlements in Europe or, frankly, with the European central banks. But in, in Europe, they enjoy negative interest rates. How does a small enterprise survive in the negative interest rate world that benefits big companies, benefits Deutsche Bank, on and on and on. How do the community banks of Europe survive in that artificial environment? Yeah, enjoy is not necessarily a word I would associate with right. negative interest rates in banks. <laughs> so uh, it's it's very tough, um, uh, particularly tough for uh, some of the smaller institutions because uh, they have the challenge of trying to maintain deposits in which means it's very difficult to make people pay to give you um, their deposits. Exactly. But they only earn uh, a negative rate of return from the uh, reserves that they have with the uh, with the central bank. So it can be a, a pretty difficult uh, okay. uh, pretty difficult for them. So there's a two-minute precursor, folks, with Governor Krosner, which gets us to Vice Chairman Clarida, a public official now. And he has the same prodigious mathematic abilities uh, that you have. Do you just assume stability as we try to bring interest rates higher? Obviously, a public official or even a former chairman like Bernanke is going to tell me that we will have stability. But do you really buy the certitude that we can have stability as we raise rates up? Well, uh, certainly there's no certainty on when you're in uncharted territory. Um, I think in the U.S., since we just went to roughly zero and have been able to get out relatively smoothly, yeah, I think that good example. gives some op- optimism yeah. that um, even when you're in a negative territory, you can try to move smoothly out. We've never done yeah. it before, so of course we can't say that with certainty. But um, I, I've been impressed that the um, money markets have been able to function as well as they have in a negative interest rate environment in Switzerland, in the Eurozone, and in Japan, okay. uh, relative to my expectations. I, I, I want to uh, address now the Druckenmiller Warsh essay. As everyone knows, I do not do snark. I don't want any comments on, you know, Warsh as a governor as you. But I am going to say, Governor Krosner, that Kevin Warsh came in is, okay, who's this financial guy? He doesn't have the brains of Randy Krosner, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I would suggest all Governor Krosner said that Governor Warsh got very high marks during the crisis for translating a financial system dialogue between the Fed and the PhDs and the bankers up in New York. With that said, that was a shocking essay suggesting this is a Fed that needs to pause. Push against that that belief. Why do we need to advance rate increases 
if so many of our listeners have the concerns of Mr. Druckenmiller and Mr. Warsh? Well, I think um, uh, that uh, that essay uh, reflects uh, some uh, many market participants' view, and it certainly reflects um, the views of some people sitting around the FOMC table, the Federal Open Market Committee table, because I don't think everyone is on exactly the same page. Now, you may not get any dissents because they may not be the, yeah, the voting members uh, right now, but um, uh, we're getting closer to... Um, what some people call the, the neutral rate, which is where you know, what the rate would be if there were no Fed. Where would the markets be? So is you know is the Fed trying to be expansionary or contractionary? If it's not being either of those, it would be uh, would be neutral. Um, as we've said in, uh, earlier, uh, we have to be somewhat humble because the, uh, the standard errors are wide. Um, our traditional models are not necessarily giving us uh, very precise uh, point estimates of uh, where those those rates are, and so I think that's that's part right. of the um, part of the debate. You see how Governor Krosner got that in, folks. He went to point estimate, which is mathiness for an immediate and single guess. The reality is, Governor Krosner, as you lived at the Fed, there are no point estimates. There's a guesstimate of probability out into the future. How squishy is it right now for this Fed out the next two, three, four, five meetings? They don't have a point estimate. Let me look it up here right now, folks. I can do that on the Bloomberg Professional Service. You can do this with your Bloomberg terminals at Chicago. I mean, out to the June 13th or the August 1 meeting, excuse me, that was this year, Dot, 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 19, there we go. Out to the June 19th of the July 31 meeting, there are no point estimates, are there? Well, we'll be getting some of those points when the, in the dot plots. <laughs> and so, but as you'll see, there's, there's not just one, one dot. There's um, uh, a variety of uh, views that people have. And, uh, and so that's what they're debating now. Um, they're getting into right. sort of neutral or balanced territory. And the the question is, how far are they into that? What are the prospects for the U.S. economy going forward? We've been growing quite rapidly this uh, this past year. I think most people said that we're not going to grow quite as rapidly next year. And the question is, what are the headwinds? As rates go up, how much of a headwind will that be for the housing market? As rates go up, will that cause right. tumult in the international market and then have um, feedback effects on the um, on the U.S. People put different weights on those uh, those different um, uh, different headwinds, and that's exactly what they're right. going to be debating. And I think that's why this is likely to be a, a dovish tightening. That okay. is that I think they will convey that uh, they're not on the same path that they have been over this past year. They're more likely to take a little bit more time to assess where the economy is, what the impact of the fiscal reforms from last year are. Right. Are they really ones that are going to increase investment and increase productivity growth? Or are right. they really kind of one-off sorts of things? No. Those are the things they would be debating. They need a little bit more time. And I think it's perfectly reasonable that they are okay. to take a pause even if they don't use See, those words. That's Krasner is so skilled, folks. He goes on with that long answer because he doesn't want the next question. Very quickly here, <laughs> per, very quickly, Professor Krasner, would you get rid of the dots? Uh, I would. Uh, I, I would try to. Uh, yeah, I would try to figure out a way to convey some of that information without the dots. Uh, I think having some sort of um, some sort of information about where uh, the the Fed sees interest rates going is valuable. I think they've kind of gotten stuck a little bit in the yeah. dots. 
uh, that uh, probably convey less information than they did when they first well, introduced them. A gracious answer that did not need to be answered. He is a former governor of the Federal Reserve System. A wonderful moment with Randall Krosner of Chicago. Greg Vellier with us with Horizon Investments, uh, linking in this economy, linking it in to this Washington as well. Greg, the news flow is absolutely extraordinary. Let me start and get out of the way what we observed yesterday with General Flynn. Is this different because this was and is a three-star general? I think so, Tom, and I, I would maybe make a 40,000-foot uh, observation as to what's going on right now. You've got a president who's flailing. He cannot get control Fair. of these scandals. I think even his supporters would agree with that. He can't get on top of these scandals. He's looking increasingly erratic, and I would make the point that one of the reasons why the market's been weak, not the only one, one of the reasons there's a growing concern about his instability. Okay, uh, that's that's an exceptionally loaded statement. I'm not sure I want to go there, but I, Greg, you are a Washington watcher. I full disclosure, folks. I never put the uniform on. I never was in a trench or the the, the proverbial sense of that. But we all perceive whether it was Mr. North or Mr. Uh, Flynn and any others you want to talk about. Your dip, uh, Mr. Um, uh, the former chief of staff, who 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 left Pym as chief of staff two days ago. Kelly, Mr. Kelly, Mr. Kelly Mr. of Boston. Kelly, and now you're going to have Mr. Uh, Mr. Yeah. Mulvaney. Okay, fine. Mr. Kelly, these guys put on a uniform. To you, Greg Vallier, is that different? I think it's different for Donald Trump. He has an, an attraction, obviously, okay. to, to military leaders. Uh, but at the same time, I think we're, we're going down a path where he views military leaders and the Justice right. Department as basically <clears throat> appendages of him, servants of his. Okay, I want to go, uh, Greg, to a theme, and it's my chart of the year, which is the twin deficits. You are expert at Washington and the deficits, the CBO and all that. Does anyone down there have any sense that if we get an, a solid economy, as Clarita puts it, or a tepid economy, what that does to the deficit? Does anybody have a clue? Well, if the economy stays solid, and I think it will, even with that climate, even with full employment, we're going to be around a trillion dollars a year, maybe higher for the next few years. At some point, maybe late spring when we fight over the debt ceiling, Washington's going to take notice. Pim, Greg, in, well, I, just, what, uh, I just want to define a trillion dollars is $1,000 billion. Yeah, and it's, just it's, incomprehensible. it's full, yeah. so we've got unemployment at 3.7, a decent economy, and we still have a deficit of a trillion. If the economy weakens, we could be talking about getting closer to 2 trillion. Greg Vallier, just speak, if you can, about the acting chief of staff, at least when it comes to the new year, Mick Mulvaney. What kind of person is he? Because he has a Tea Party background. He's well-liked. He's a policy wonk. He could last for a while, but let's face it, guys. If General Kelly couldn't last, uh, I can't see Mick Mulvaney lasting. And his title, lest I forget, is acting chief of staff, not chief of staff. So what do you expect from the new Trump White House? Well, I think when he goes down to Mar-a-Lago for 
two and a half weeks, there's going to be more tweeting. He hates a vacuum, so there's going to be a daily avalanche of tweets, you know, more speculation about what happens next year. There's a big difference, though, between this year and next, and that is the Democrats in the House will have a say in everything. What will be their first issue? Well, several that won't make it, but let's be candid. They're aiming for the 2020 campaign, so they want to advertise their agenda. So minimum wage, global warming, they'll talk about uh, infrastructure. But I think the main thing will be subpoenas and hearings of all things Trump, leading toward possibly a move in the spring to impeach. Really? You think it's going to be that kind of drama? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, to be, now, I have to add that chances of impeachment might okay. be 55%. Chances of conviction in the Senate yeah. is maybe 20%. I, I, I've made it very clear to our staff, uh, Mr. Vellier, that I really want to avoid, as you mentioned earlier, talking about any anybody's stability, et cetera, et cetera. But your comments do bring up where Vice President Pence fits into all this. Give us a Pence update. Well, he's a loyal soldier. Some cynics would say a sycophant, but uh, he certainly hasn't strayed from the reservation. And if if Trump were to be in real trouble, and again, I expect him to be acquitted in the Senate if it gets to that level. But if it does get to that level, there will be more uh, focus on Pence. Uh, I'm told by my lobbyist friends that Pence has kept a very active uh, Rolodex. Uh, He knows where all the contributions are if he needs to tap them in a hurry. Well, you mentioned contributions, and I just want to circle back, if I can, on Mick Mulvaney, because wasn't it Mick Mulvaney who said that he would only meet with people who had, with lobbyists who had donated money to the campaign? He regretted saying that, and he walked it back right away. But, uh, yeah, there were a lot of But it's what happened. Well, there are a lot of people in this town who meet with people who contribute. I don't think you can fix votes, but you can certainly get access with contributions. One final question, Greg Vellier. Are we going to have a Mueller Friday? I think it's too late. I think we're too close to the holidays. Okay. I think Mueller probably drags on into late winter before he brings all the indictments. That's just a guess, though. Very good. Greg Vellier, thank you so much for the update uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.